Welcome, everyone, to the May 2022 Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio. It is the anniversary edition, Casey. I, I forgot to mention this when we were prepping. How many years has it been now? <laughs> uh, you know, I actually, <laughs> I, I would be in big trouble if this was a more intimate relationship. I don't remember. Six years? Have we done this for six I years now? It is six, I think it's six years, which oh. I find... Absolutely amazing and uh, and very satisfying. Congratulations. Well, thank you, Matt, and thank you for uh, indulging me on this weird uh, show for the last six years. I think that means I've been around doing this show for, what, a third of the entire existence of Plan Rad as an independent show? Almost. Since okay. we're going on 20 years this coming November, but, but still very respectable. That very respectable near a third of the time. Uh, what a delight to do this show. I remember... The moment I decided I wanted to do this, I was walking down the street. I was looking for ways to have, in a sense, more ways to work with you, but also to play around with these ideas because writing takes a long time right, yeah. to, to write well. <laughs> but as most podcasters have discovered, very easy to speak at length about things. And so everyone listening, thank you for allowing me to do so for six years and Matt for putting these together and putting so much of your time editing and making me sound better and making our guests sound great and just in all sense making the show happen it's just been a joy to do this with you well thank you for all of that i'm i'm glad that uh, getting to work together was part of your uh, incentive for doing this i i think we have delivered something valuable it certainly has been very educational very illuminating for me what a string of terrific guests uh, we've had on and that's going to continue with uh, with today's show, as you will no doubt explain in just a moment. Uh, first, though, thank you to all of you out there, especially those of you who are members or donors to the Planetary Society. It is you, most especially our members, who make all of this happen. We could not have taken on this addition, this satellite to Planetary Radio without your support. In fact, we never would have taken on Planetary Radio itself in the first place. So thank you to all of you for making this happen. Uh, we would love to be able to include you in that uh, message of gratitude if you're not already a member or a donor to the Society, planetary.org slash join. And we have a big membership campaign underway right now as, uh, as Casey and I speak. Uh, which you will uh, maybe hear a, a little bit of a celebrity talk about during our our quick break toward the middle of uh, of this week's oh, excuse me this month's program. Again, it's planetary.org/join. You don't have to wait for a message other than that one right there. We uh, we hope you'll uh, take a look and join up. Yeah, we're trying to get 500 new members in two weeks. So if you're listening to this show when it comes out and you haven't signed up as a member, please consider doing so. It costs less than a Disney Plus subscription or a Netflix subscription. <laughs> it's less than that. It goes directly into the organization. It keeps us doing shows like this. And also for existing members, consider upping your membership. We have higher levels of membership for people who want to contribute more and really allow us to do this kind of stuff. So thank you if you're already a member and thank you if you sign up as a consequence of this. It really does. And I say this all the time, but it's true, right, Matt? It really does make a difference. We we live and die with our members. And if we don't have you, we don't exist as an organization. 
That is exactly right. And, you know, the Mandalorian has nothing on Casey except for that Beskar armor. <laughs> it's basically the same otherwise, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we do have this great guest. You want to tease that a little bit? And, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the decadal, the planetary science and astrobiology decadal. Yes, we'll get to that. Uh, Dr. Mariel Borowitz, she's an associate professor of international affairs at Georgia Tech. This is a topic that we've had a ton of requests on. It took us a while to find a time to work with her to talk about this. I'm so glad it worked out, though, because we're going to talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the consequences that we're seeing in space, including on the International Space Station, the broader issues of international space relations, space sustainability, and the unique ways in which space, and particularly commercial space, is intersecting in this conflict in ways that just have not happened before. Very fascinating discussion, big picture stuff beyond our normal area of civil space science, the peaceful fun stuff. This is really important, and I thought a very insightful conversation we have with Muriel coming up in just a few minutes. I've already heard it, of course. She is a delight to listen to, and so uh, I also heartily recommend it. And uh, that is, again, just moments away. But in the meantime, Casey, I, we don't have to go into tremendous detail on the decadal because you actually have done that elsewhere. Yes. So the Planetary Science Decadal Survey, right? The once a decade set of recommendations from the scientific community outlining the future of NASA's robotic planetary program. It came out in between this show and the last show. We already had Dr. Borowitz signed up for this show, so we're going to push off a full episode about this into the future, but we should talk about some of the big picture stuff. You're right. I wrote a whole article on this at planetary.org, highlighting some of the basic takeaways and initial analyses of this big report, which again, has a lot of impact to the future of robotic science. The twice times that it's happened before, the top recommendations have been manifested by NASA, even though they're not mandated to do so, right? These are recommendations. They turned into the Curiosity rover and then also into the Perseverance rover and the Europa Clipper orbiter are all missions recommended in prior decadal surveys. Uh, top recommendation, we will never hear the end of these jokes, so get used to them now. We're going to probe Uranus uh, starting in the 2030s, maybe. And this is the big flagship mission to an ice giant, right? The first dedicated mission to these types of large planets that have more heavier elements and in various forms of ices, right? Like carbon and nitrogen rather than hydrogen and helium, which make up the gas giants, Saturn and, and Jupiter. These are planets that are very similar to the most common type of exoplanets that astronomers are discovering around other stars. Of course, we only had that one flyby of Uranus in 1986 by Voyager 2. So this is a big, exciting mission that we're going to see, though, of course, it won't probably even launch until the early 2030s. It takes 10 years to get there. We're talking about a mission 20 years from now. But that's mm -hmm. the big takeaway. There's a good chance that'll happen. Matt, you want to jump in that? What was your reaction to seeing Uranus rise to the top for this decadal survey. Well, I was thrilled, of course, and you've just proven that you do know the correct pronunciation of the planet. <laughs> I, I just, I always think when I hear that other pronunciation 
of my one and only college astronomy course and the professor who said, it's Uranus. This is an astronomy course, not an anatomy course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and But, you know, we have had so many people on the weekly planetary radio show, as well as SPE, who have been calling out, crying out in the wilderness for a mission to one of the ice giants, why we were just talking to the proposers or the uh, people behind the case study for the Neptune Odyssey mission. We At least we are going to one of the two now. Hopefully Neptune will one day get its literal day in the sun. It is thrilling to know that this is about to happen. And this is the top priority, right? I mean, yep. can we? is there any hope that we might also see that second priority, the Orbalander to Enceladus? To Enceladus, that's the other ranked number two. I would say very difficult financially. So big picture, let's talk about some of the other top priorities. So number two was the Orbilander, which would, I, I love this mission. It would orbit and then land because Enceladus is so tiny. It's easy to do both, right, with the same spacecraft, and it would land near some of these geysers of, of water and other material being spewn out from the south pole of, of Enceladus. Life detection mission, very cool, but unfortunately ranked number two. The kind of uber priority of all of this is not a new mission. And I think that's important here, too. Before even starting a Uranus mission, we need to finish Mars sample return. That was the clear takeaway from this decadal that the most important mission of this period for NASA's robotic space program is to complete Mars sample return as soon as possible. Yeah. That makes sense. We're already a couple years into it. NASA's requesting on the order of $822 million a year, uh, which is larger than the entire heliophysics division in its science uh, mission directorate. So this is a big, chunky mission. And delays or anything perturbing this mission will have serious financial repercussions. So we need to get this done. It needs the resources right now to, to finish that, to have a minimum impact on the rest of planetary science. And that's also called out by the report. Did you see, Casey, I, it may have just been this morning, uh, certainly not before yesterday, this announcement from at least one scientist involved with ESA's ExoMars rover, Rosalind Franklin, uh, that it may now not launch until 2028, and maybe they'd somehow turn it into the sample return portion uh, of the uh, ESA's responsibility? Yeah, that was an enigmatic statement by that individual. So, I mean, right, this is ESA's ExoMars, which was supposed to launch on a Russian rocket this year. Obviously, with the issues in Ukraine, that is not happening. And, and just a serious blow, we talked about this a little bit, to that mission so they can't launch it until earliest at 28. That starts getting pretty late. That's about as late as you could launch a sample return, a caching mission. They could maybe modify it. It it's, becomes tricky. It's a rover that's not designed for the caching return, right? It's a rover designed to do its own independent science investigation, has all these other instrumentation on it, including an instrument that cost NASA about $150 million to make over the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. That adds a level of complexity and bolting on or, or modifying it at this later stage may not be feasible. I see more overlap with the other recommended Mars mission in this decadal called the Mars Life Explorer mission, which was like a Phoenix-like spacecraft that would land and drill into the ice to look for potential microbes in some subterranean ice. 
that's doing what uh, Rosalind Franklin is designed to do already. Maybe there's some opportunity there. Regardless, I think NASA's Mars program right now is going all in on Mars sample return, which is an interesting problem because they're deferring all kind of future missions until after Mars sample return. So this 25-year beautiful Mars exploration program, this in-situ scientific program, is facing somewhat of an identity crisis. While they put everything into sample return, what do they do next? So maybe there's some real opportunity here for NASA to re-engage as a partner on ExoMars for a lower cost than just building a brand new mission of their own. Who knows? There's some interesting opportunities to, to take advantage of this situation. Maybe Mars sample return is part of that. Maybe it's not. It's a very dynamic and evolving situation. Man, that is the entire world right now, a very dynamic situation. <laughs> yes, that's true. He can say that about everything. We should also give a plug to that other podcast that uh, you also talked about, the Decadalon. If you'd like to jump ahead a couple months and hear me talk in depth about the Decadal through all the major sections, um, I did do an interview with Jake Robbins at the We Martians podcast. He's a great interviewer, really dives deep onto these issues. And I think he did end up doing a two-parter episode on the Decadal survey with me. And so we we really go into it. So that's a preview of kind of these in-depth discussions there. I do want to highlight just a couple other things on the Decadal. So besides Mars, so besides the flagships, the other things that we saw were a recommendation to increase funding for basic research. That's really important just for the health of the scientific community. That's the only place that they can stay funded to do the actual science of the data that returns. We also saw recommendations for increasing the overall cost caps of the discovery of new frontiers, these small and medium class planetary missions. They had a whole analysis on the workforce issues and ways to increase diversity and participation within planetary science, which is obviously really important. And I think, again, just the big picture of these, which is it's a fascinating document to read. It outlines the big questions that they're trying to answer. And I think that's an important aspect. They start with the questions. And all of these missions that they then recommend are ways to address those questions directly. And they actually have these really nice graphs that show how the Uranus mission or Mars Life Finder mission or any other of these proposed missions intersect with some of these top priority fundamental science questions that the scientific community has identified about our solar system, our origin here, and where it's going. And so it's just a a very useful document to read if you want to understand the field of planetary science and how much we know and, and frankly, how much we still have yet to know. There is so much more to this. Again, you can find Casey's terrific analysis at planetary.org. We will, of course, link to that from uh, the page at uh, planetary.org slash radio for this episode of the Space Policy Edition. The one other thing I want to mention is that it does talk about planetary defense for the first time. This is the key area of, you know, not getting hit by an asteroid, of course. And what was great to see is that they strongly endorsed the Neo Surveyor Space Telescope, that Sentinel mission that would be sitting out there in space searching for asteroids in the infrared, right, where they glow from the heat of the sun. Otherwise, they're very hard to spot because they're just little charcoal briquettes of, of space rock against the black backdrop. However, NASA is proposing a $100 million cut to this mission in 2023. And now we have a decadal survey saying, no, this is an absolutely critical piece of planetary program. We should pursue this mission as quickly as possible. And then we're going to be using that here in the next couple of months to really make a strong argument 
in defense of Neo Surveyor, and frankly, in defense of the whole planetary program. I think we, we released an official statement that you can also find online. The Planetary Society intends to vigorously advocate for the recommended program here. And this will be defining our, a lot of our advocacy efforts for the next 10 years to really start to see these missions, to manifest them, to make them happen. So when we're sitting around in our retirement homes, we can see those beautiful images of Uranus and Neptune and maybe even the Orbilander <laughs> from Enceladus coming down, right? These are generational activities that we all get to be a part of and hopefully experience because exploration just takes time, but it can happen, right? We, we're seeing it happen now with Mars sample return, and I want to see it happen with Uranus. I want to see it happen with Enceladus. So lots to keep, Casey, and our man in Washington, Brendan Curry, the director of Washington operations for the Planetary Society, very busy for the foreseeable future, perhaps for the foreseeable uh, future decades. All right. Remind us once again uh, where Mariel is from, and uh, we'll get into that great conversation you just had with her. Dr. Mariel Borowitz, she's an associate professor of international affairs at Georgia Tech. Her research deals with international space policy, particularly with Earth observation satellites and satellite data sharing. But she also focuses on strategy and developments in space security and situational awareness. So basically, the meat and potatoes stuff about how we use low Earth orbit and geosynchronous orbit, how we make that a safe domain for all nations to operate in and emerging threats from a national security perspective. We talk about, again, the consequences to this space domain from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Some of the things that she was surprised by in terms of how space is being integrated into that conflict and where we see future efforts at cooperation or not, you know, anti-cooperation or competition unfolding as a result of this. Again, really interesting discussion with her, something I've been wanting to dive into for a long time. I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. And it's a very timely one. Here is that excellent conversation between Casey Dreyer, Chief Advocate for the Planetary Society and our Senior Space Policy Advisor, and Mariel Borowitz. And uh, we'll see you on the other side. Dr. Mariel Borowitz, thank you for joining us today on the Space Policy Edition. Thank you so much for having me. Lots to talk about today. Perhaps the most questioned topic that we've been getting from our members and listeners has been about the International Space Station. So I'd like to start there and then expand outwards to the larger geopolitical or global consequences to the space domain from this Russian invasion of Ukraine. So has anything changed so far since the Russian invasion and the subsequent sanctions imposed on the country by most of the nations in the world? From a practical perspective, the day-to-day -day operations of the International Space Station have stayed the same, um, and there have been no official changes even to the longer-term policy. So Russia has made a few statements about potentially ending their, their participation in the International Space Station at some point, um, but there's been no official decision about that. And NASA and the other partners have really been emphasizing the fact that day-to-day -day operations are continuing forward. We're months now into this conflict. We can't emphasize this enough that day-to-day -day operations have not changed. And and why do people think that they have? I think maybe that's worth discussing a little bit. Why is there this idea or even occasional news stories saying otherwise, that Russia's pulling out or Russia's going to abandon U.S. astronauts there? Where is this coming from? It's coming from Russia. <laughs> um, so, you know, the head of the Russian space agency has made a number of statements, you know, in R Russian news sources, I think some on Twitter 
basically saying that, you know, maybe Russia will end its participation in the International Space Station. What he hasn't done is say, we are going to do that or putting a a particular date on that. Uh, But that's where those stories are coming from. They're making statements, you know, that that's something they're considering. And they're being fairly provocative about it as well. You know, so saying things like, maybe Russia will end its participation and the U.S. really needs us, that the ISS will no longer be able to operate if Russia pulls out of the station. And so therefore the U.S. needs to end sanctions or end certain sanctions at least. Um, so so kind of trying to leverage it in, in that way. Right. I mean, they were putting out, it's hard to say exactly whether it was a declaration that they would do or a suggestion that they would abandon their role in the station unless the U.S. and its allies lifted sanctions. The U.S. and its allies did not lift sanctions. These statements by Dmitry Rogozin are almost designed to be misleading, right? To to capture, uh, <laughs> to put it in modern parlance, almost like a, the equivalent of posting online, where it's purposely provocative, meant to mislead. But then at the end of the day, the actions don't change. But we just saw another round of news stories, I think, earlier this week as we record this, that they were going to leave and this but it really if you parse his language it's like no he's he would give a one year notification if they were but nothing's been done yet because russia signed on to operate the iss through 2024 so is the us and its partners they're working on extending it to 2030 mm-hmm. but nothing seems to be really happening besides rhetoric and i right. i think it's worth exploring why why is that do you think why are they stuck in this rhetorical trap it's an interdependent system, right? All the partners rely on each other. And it's the same for Russia. Russia needs the, the U.S. and its partners to participate in the International Space, Space Station and for, for Russia to continue those activities. And arguably, Russia needs the International Space Station just like it's the heart of our human space activity right now. You know, that's the, the only thing that our astronauts do is really go to the International Space Station and, and work and live there. Um, it's the same for Russia. You can say, oh, we're going to end this participation and, and what will you do to, to boost the station and keep it in orbit? But also, what will Russia do with its human spaceflight program? They pull out of the International Space Station, suddenly they don't have any real purpose for for what their cosmonauts are doing. They won't have any uh, location to go to. They won't have any clear pathway for research or, or other things. So they also need the International Space Station and and need the partners to continue to to cooperate there. So I think that's part of the reason, you know, that that you see this. And and I think some of it can be personality as well. I mean, back in 2014 with the invasion of Crimea as well, you saw Rogozin also making these kind of provocative statements with respect to space. And I think in some in some cases it it came back to bite Russia uh, in some ways. I think that's that can be driving it as well. Is that when he made the trampolines comment? That- yeah, I talked about the trampolines. <laughs> he, he was also the one who originally uh, put forth the idea that maybe Russia wouldn't provide RD-180 engines anymore. He made that statement offhand, but uh, in both of those cases, the U.S. Congress and kind of policy world really responded to that and said, you know, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't be using RD-180 engines anymore. Um, and the U.S. Congress actually passed a law to say, after a certain number, we're not going to buy those engines anymore. And I think that was actually probably worse for Russia than it was for us, right? They really uh, relied on that that income stream. They're the ones who made this initial comment, didn't take any action on it. And in the end, it was the U.S. that took action. 
And and similarly, you mentioned with the use a trampoline to get to the space station, because back then we, you know, shuttle had been retired. We didn't have um, commercial crew yet. So we were totally reliant on Russia for those rides. But after, you know, those statements were made after that situation, Congress really doubled down on providing funding for commercial crew. So I think in both of those cases. Yeah, it was around that time that you started to see actual the Congress, again, meeting those requests of funding to really continue commercial crew and all that debate or underfunding really dropped away. And I never connected those two. But that, that really does align. And so it seems like a lot of I mean, you could broadly apply this to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that this seems just really bad long term strategic decisions here to, to be talking and acting like this. So even though nothing functionally seems to have changed, right? I mean, we saw astronaut Mark Vandehei come back on a Soyuz, successfully get safely back uh, to, to Earth and then back to the United States. Uh, we're still talking with the Russians about seat exchange on Soyuz and, and commercial crew vehicles. Right. But there's no longer, it seems like, a, a, a discussion about integrating Russia into longer term human spaceflight plans after the space station, after ISS. I mean, and, and that had already kind of started to happen. This is one of the questions that I had for you as this broader topic for this discussion, which was how much of this is coming as a result of the invasion of Ukraine versus how much is this an acceleration of pre-existing trends in terms of cooperation and, and yeah. how this role of cooperation, it, it's simultaneously this optimistic integration, but also somewhat binding and limiting, right? It can be very difficult almost by design. So let's actually, let's touch on the first one first. Is this a, just an acceleration of trends? I think the, the turning point was really Crimea. And that's where you see the US and Russia starting to really go their independent ways. And, and particularly US really start to focus on looking at independence rather than cooperation with Russia. Um, and that's true with the International Space Station, with the RD-180 engines, um, and other areas as well. So we still had other talk about scientific cooperation and, and other areas, but I think those two big areas, that's where you start to really see that change happening. And building into your to your other question about, you know, what is this overall trend? I mean, I think it it is helpful to think about why did we get in these partnerships in the first place, right? And it was not uh, an accident. It wasn't uh, just a financial situation. It was very much a strategic decision to engage Russia in the International Space Station um, or to purchase those RD-180 engines uh, from Russia. That was a decision made on largely a national level that it was going to be in the U.S. national interest to do that. We were doing things like helping to uh, infuse funding into Russia's program, ensure that those people were going to be working on either civil space projects or on space technology that was being sold to the U.S. as opposed to elsewhere. Those were things that made a lot of sense from a U.S. strategic perspective and then and also had benefits for Russia as well. So it was you know, mutually beneficial. Context at the end of the Cold War. Exactly. And so but I think if you look at the situation today, we just don't have that same demand to to try to engage with Russia. There isn't this immediate concern about, you know, what's going to happen to these rocket scientists like there was at the end of the Cold War. And I think it's just becoming less and less tenable to to have this kind of close cooperation, um, given Crimea and now the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, so space is different and special in some ways. And I think there are reasons that we can sometimes cooperate in space, even when we have tensions in other areas. But it's not a fully separate 
completely insulated from from everything else going on in the world, you know, so we it still has to fit with overall US strategic interests. That's really interesting, because, I mean, there's two ways that this ISS is kind of pitched, right? And I'd say, at least in the last 20 years, it's kind of generally been the focus on, oh, it's a cooperative thing. This is where we all have a shared interest in space. And this is an international, I mean, it's in the name, right? International effort to be in space together. And it almost downplays the initial policy goal of keeping ex-Soviet rocket uh, expertise out of more nefarious actors' hands. But it almost now, it seems like that the that original policy goal is kind of outdated, but we're stuck in the framework of this broader one now that no longer makes sense, right? So it's the the world changed, obviously, in the last 30 mm-hmm. years, but we're tied to a policy that no longer makes sense. It was a, almost a short-term policy that's now masquerading as a long-term policy. I mean, I think there were also hopes that it, it could have grander results. And so I think there was that immediate need to say, okay, let's bring in Russia, let's keep these rocket scientists employed, right? But I think there was hope back then, and, and for many years, that this engagement with Russia was going to be a pathway for us to engage with them, to to work together, to learn more about each other. And we see that in other areas as well. The US up until early 2022 was having bilateral meetings with Russia about space security issues, space sustainability. Having that kind of engagement, and particularly on what you can see as low-hanging fruit, things that we can agree on. We can agree on human spaceflight, you know, and the importance of that and our interest in that. We can agree on space sustainability, right? And making sure space remains a usable place, or at least we thought we could. You know, so I think it it makes sense to try to have that kind of engagement and to hope that by engaging in these areas, we can then grow that to other areas as well and have better understanding between the two nations, you know, and from a US perspective, have some influence, right? There's always a question of, can you have more influence or, or achieve your goals better by engaging uh, with another entity or by kind of isolating that entity? Um, and I think we were giving engagement a try. And I think that there were some high hopes for that. Um, but I think with with Crimea and now with the war in Ukraine, the U.S. is going to turn to a different, different method. Yeah, but we're kind of stuck though with the station. So that, that was my other going to be my other question. Like, so is the station is this a policy success in a sense, right? That even when we're somewhat both morally and strategically and self interest, all these other things are kind of distancing ourselves from mm-hmm. Russia due to this invasion. The fact that we cannot do so on the station. Is that what it was designed to do? Or are we kind of bound to, is this, that's kind of what I was getting at. Is this the remnant of some other era that we're now bearing this burden? And like, we can't make that clean break or, I mean, it almost feels like good. We can't, like, that's the whole point, right? right? That that, was, I think that was the point. I think you're right. You know, I think you get into these partnerships where you're fully interdependent because you, you know, it raises the stakes for everyone involved. That said, if one of the partners then, despite those high stakes, decides to, cause problems for that relationship. I, you know, then I think in, in some ways, I don't know if I would call it a failure. I think that there's so many years of, of operating and success. And I, and I still think you have to, you have to think about different levels uh, on a high, you know, national strategy kind of level. I think it may no longer be playing the role that we had originally hoped, but I do think there's still value in the day to day and the individuals involved and also in what we're accomplishing we may not want to engage with Russia today, but I think over the last 30 years, being able to 
show that we can work with potential adversaries, to have that astronauts to cosmonauts, right, or the the operators on the Russian side and the U.S. side um, and our other partners, you know, Japan and Europe. I think being able to get that day-to-day operation working and form those friendships and partnerships and things, I think there was value there. um, And I think there still is some value there. I think this is one of the, you know, it's really challenging, I think, for those people working on it day-to-day because, you know, we have people living in space. That's amazing, you know, and we have people from countries that are having serious geopolitical problems on the earth, but as individuals operating in space, they're doing wonderful things. And so I think, I think that aspect of it is, is still good. And as kind of individual humans, there's things we can see there that are, that are positive. Right. But, but yeah, in the larger geopolitical sense, I think it's no longer achieving its goal. Yeah, there's a symbolic, always been that symbolic aspect of it. Flipping this too. The, the Russians are kind of as stuck in this as well. Like they're not able to leverage this the way that they seem to want to. Again, we mentioned at the beginning, they didn't get a relaxation of sanctions, right? They clearly have, by investing in a cooperative effort for the station, they gave up some kind of self-control over their own destiny. And now they are themselves stuck in this. Unlike other things where they were able to walk away from the OneWeb deal, they were able to pull their uh, launch facilities out of the ESA launch facilities. And they have to keep doing this because, as you point out, they have just no other options. Again, maybe that's also the policy success, right? That they they aren't themselves like flipping it. They're stuck in this as much as anybody. And they can say whatever they want. They can have whatever rhetoric. But at the end of the day, they don't have the money or resources to rapidly spin up some alternative human spaceflight program, particularly from their legacy that they carry, right, as the first launching the first satellite and launching the first uh, person into space. And so there, you know, it kind of works in that sense, too. It's forcing them to stay cooperative at some level as well. It is. And and I would say, in a lot of ways, Russia's behavior in this area has been really uh, surprising, because mm-hmm. some of the things you mentioned, deciding not to operate Soyuz in French Guiana anymore, right, or having these demands for one web that were completely untenable and, and losing those launches. I mean, the impact on Russian commercial launch for years, I, I can't imagine that that coming back. Right. Um, and who would and trust a launch big, contract? With right. Them. And so that's going to have a huge negative impact for them. Uh, and that was their own doing, you know, they, they chose to, to pull out of that. Um, you know, so from that perspective, if they, do manage to somehow extract themselves from the International Space Station, I think it's also, like you're saying, it have major negative repercussions for them. But I guess that hasn't stopped them in some of these other areas. So, so yeah, so I think there's some some question there of... I mean, at the end of the day, I was thinking this too, like the this partnership at a station relies on that there's rational actors involved in this, right? I mean, and I think that's this the bigger geopolitical question about how much of a rational actor is Russia currently on the global stage, right? And, and people have debates about also Putin's kind of state of mind and what he's trying to get out of this strategically. But the whole agreement, the IGA breaks down if there is a chaotic partner suddenly within that who, who doesn't care about their, their own self-interest or ability and outcome. But so far in practice, it seems like they have, but rhetorically, they're getting further and further away from that. One more point I want to touch on with the ISS before we move on to broader issues. Mm-hmm. You, you you brought this up a bit, this idea of engagement versus kind of competition. 
I fear in some ways that particularly places like China and other emerging nations are going to take the wrong lesson out of this or look at this and say, from Russia's perspective, okay, they engaged, they cooperated. And at the end of the day, they were completely over the barrel stuck with this is their, they didn't have that ability to drive their own destiny. There's no self-determination in that. That was the consequence of cooperation is losing that independence. And you look at China's program, which has been generally isolated by the US, and all it's done is led them to develop their own completely independent capabilities, right? They have their own space station now. And so the lesson for them almost strikes me as saying never cooperate at a massive level like this, because then you'll they'll have leverage. Other nations will have leverage over your goals and other global actions. So, so this is maybe a broader consequence of this invasion is revealing, in a sense, the the inherent weaknesses of global interdependence when you start having more kind of nationalistic, independent activities that threaten that you just assume that there's going to be like this base level of of engagement and rationality that, that may not be consistent anymore. Yeah, I mean, there is always this question about how much interdependence do you want, e- even when we're dealing with allies? What you know, one of the um, lessons learned from the constellation program, you know, literally in their in their lessons learned document, in that case, the U.S. Uh, wanted to have none of, didn't want to have any of the partners on its critical path, um, so that all of the core elements of the project were going to be U.S. only, um, and this meant even allies were kind of doing things that added to the program but weren't central to it. It turned out after the fact, they really learned that the international partners were not happy with that, that the people don't want to just add on to, to somebody else's project. And I think that's true with our allies, and that's true with potential adversaries as well, right, With or competitors. So Russia originally was looking at participating on the Lunar Gateway program um, and ultimately decided not to do that. And the reason they gave is it's too U.S.-centric. Um, which some people interpreted as another kind of provocative thing for Rogozin to say. But I think there might be some truth to that, right? That Russia doesn't want to be a junior partner to the the U.S. program. Um, and that may have been how it was seen. And I think you have the same issue for, for China. For them, if there's some kind of engagement, they want would want to be a, a major partner, um, not just a contributor. And so the, the types of things they're doing where they're building their own space station and saying it's open for others to visit, right? They're working with with Europe, but they've, uh, at least in theory, said it's open to other countries, presumably the United States as well, because I think that kind of cooperation where you maybe uh, visit each other's stations or something like that is of more interest to them. That's going to have more benefit uh, in terms of uh, the visibility, kind of the, it, it puts them on an even footing in terms of being a partner. Um, so I think that's the kind of things that that these countries are looking for. Maybe there'll be an opportunity for interdependence in the future, but you know, I think building up to that, I think there's there is a desire to first show that independent capability. Do you think this is going to lead towards political statement level or global geopolitical blocks of cooperation? So, do you see a future with Russian Chinese cooperation as as an anti or antipodal kind of point to the to Western and U.S. allies cooperation, and maybe other blocks of space nations that represent aligned political interests versus this kind of inter broad global space cooperation? So, I saw someone mention like a NATO space station, which it would be a very different type of station than the current one that we have right. in terms of what it's saying. 
I mean, I think the direction we've been going with moon plans, for example, has definitely been breaking into blocks, right? Having kind of the Artemis program with the U.S. and its allies and then uh, Russia and China looking at a separate program, not only in terms of the, the overall mission they're pursuing, but also like the Artemis Accords, right? Russia and China have not signed on to those and, and presumably would like to do something separate. I, I think that is the, the direction we are we are headed more than full international coordination on these on these issues. I, you know, I think partly we were seeing before this Europe at least cooperating more with with Russia and China. So not not these huge large scale projects like Artemis, but um, lunar landers, uh, the ExoMars project, and I think one of the near-term effects is that Russia is just coming off as a not a dependable partner, right? All of those um, activities are, are being canceled and that's years of work. It's scientific benefit that, that we're not going to get or that's going to be significantly delayed. And so I also, I think there may be repercussions for, for Russia in terms of just reliability and in, in future partnership. A lot more of Casey's conversation with Marielle Borowitz is just ahead, so stick around. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. When you become a member of the Planetary Society, you join their mission to increase discoveries in our solar system, to elevate the search for life outside our planet, and decrease the risk of Earth being hit by an asteroid. Co-founded by Carl Sagan and led today by CEO Bill Nye, the Planetary Society exists for those who believe in space exploration to take action together. So join the Planetary Society and boldly go together to build our future. So let's zoom out a bit from Russia ISS and US ISS relationships to look at some of the consequences to the broader space ecosystem derived from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I might, you know, you specialize obviously in international affairs and national space kind of security issues and space sustainability. I think those are all very relevant here. So maybe I'll just turn this over to you. What are some of the major changes or aspects in which space has intersected with this invasion? Is that represent a break or a continuation again of trends that we've been seeing over the past decade? Yeah, I'll say one of the things that's been really interesting. So I, I teach a course on space security at Georgia Tech. Up until now, so many things have just been theoretical. If there's a conflict, would what would commercial satellite operators do? You know, would they be involved? Would they be providing services or information? Um, and if they get involved and they provide those things, what is going to be the reaction of the of the nations involved, right? And um, and these were all things we'd we'd debate in in previous iterations of the class in just this very theoretical way. And now we're we're seeing that play out. So for that question in particular, commercial entities very much got involved uh, in the conflict in Ukraine, and so you saw communication satellites, right? Most, most notably or, or publicly was probably the SpaceX Starlink, where Ukrainian officials 
tweeted out a, a request for uh, for terminals for help from for Starlink, and then Elon Musk responded via tweet that they were going to provide them, and they did. Um, but but other satellite providers, you know, Iridium, Viasat, they've been operating in in Ukraine as well. And then also the commercial imagery, um, remote sensing. So I've done a lot of research as well, looking at international cooperation in um, Earth observations and in remote sensing and, and kind of how the commercial sector interacts with the government. And this, again, has been this really interesting case study um, in seeing how these companies ha- have been right in the thick of it. I mean, they've been providing imagery to, to the U.S. government, to NATO and others, but then also directly to Ukraine. Sometimes that gets covered. You see that talked about in the news as as if it's this completely independent action of the the commercial companies. And there is an element of that. They are making their own independent choices. But it also has been very clearly encouraged by the U.S. government and European governments as well. It's been an interesting type of, of partnership. They buy, they have agreements already with these companies to buy a lot of their remote sensing data to begin with, right? But then also, I think what really struck me to your point, particularly about remote sensing and and imagery, is how it's being used to create or validate a reality on the ground. I'm trying to think of another example of so rapid amount of information of Russian deployments of armaments and personnel validating the hideous nature of war crimes. You saw in New York Times, they're seeing bodies on the streets using commercial satellite imagery to trace and then ground truth images that they're getting from the surface. The role of just that rapid amount of information that was prior only available to space superpowers, right, of that kind of level of ground observation is now available, as you point out, to to everyone. And I imagine including Russia, right, because some of these are just open systems that share that. Or, Or do they have access to this kind of data? So I think when it's released publicly, and and you and I are seeing it, then certainly they're seeing it as well. My sense is that these companies are not selling or releasing data to Russia. So Russia has its own reconnaissance systems. It certainly has access to to high quality satellite data as well. Um, But I think that's one of the interesting dynamics. Yes, the commercial industry is, is playing an important role here. They're releasing a lot of data. They're providing a lot of data to Ukraine. But I don't think the situation would be the same if those companies were wanting to provide imagery to Russia, for example. Yeah. The U.S. has uh, the government has encouraged the sharing with Ukraine. It would it would not do so. That's a, an interesting angle, though, to think about that. It's commercial space sector may it itself be a national security issue. If, for example, there was just happened to be most of the energy in commercial space or observation coming from China, which is much more sympathetic to Russia right now, would you be seeing this level of cooperation and sharing this data with either Ukraine or with media or with whomever, right? That in some sense reflect the political and policy goals to your point, as you were pointing out, of their countries in which they're, they're based in. And so it strikes me as that nurturing a, a commercial space system, not just all everything with, with, with launch, right? A, a distribution of launch opportunities, remote sensing, imagery, and communications in a way that reflects the values of one's nation seems to actually be some, something that's now moved into a national security policy consideration. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the commercial space industry is a strategic industry for, for the United States. And I think there is a recognition of that. You know, that's partly that's why you see all these kind of ITAR and export issues, right? We know that these are, are important strategic technologies. Um, and these companies, most of their revenue comes from the U.S. government and from the defense and intelligence sector. And so 
they're going to align with the the goals of their largest customers, you know, just for their their regular um, commercial interest. So I think that's not not surprising to see. But I think you know this is a has been a great way to to make it clear to policymakers exactly what you're saying that there is this this strategic value, right? I, I think you know with the U.S. Um, remote sensing sector, for example, there's been debates over the years about exactly what the limits are placed on the resolution that these companies can can provide. What you know how how much detail can they put in their imagery that they are, they're going to sell? The U.S. has been typically pretty careful about that, essentially putting in place rules that say you can sell data that's as good as what's out there on the market. But even though our our companies could provide even better than that, you know, the best imagery on the market, they were not allowed to do that based on the licensing they got from the U.S. government. Probably that's had some negative effect on remote sensing companies in the U.S., right? Uh, and, and that's always been kind of a balance. Well, you you want that industry to be successful because at the end of the day, it's going to benefit you, right? The U.S. has at least some control over commercial remote sensing that is based in the U.S., no control over commercial remote sensing based in China. As we're seeing uh, now play out in, in this conflict, it makes a big difference. Even just who buys and sells the data tells you something about the kind of ethos of the companies themselves and what they're representing. It's all this starts to get pretty tightly integrated politically. Mm-hmm. It, it just strikes me that we're seeing this level of information being really just opened up or is this kind of the whole Biden administration's approach to this has just been sharing as much as possible. But by using commercial data, actually, you also then kind of don't have to share the US level intelligence of the, of the government level spy satellites that are, I don't know, orders of magnitude better. You probably know better than I do, but significantly better than commercial sensing. Well, and this has always been, you know, for, for years recognized as one of the big valuable things about using, you know, commercial remote sensing. And you might say, okay, the National Reconnaissance Office and National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, they have access to their own classified reconnaissance satellites, highly capable. You know, why are they also buying this commercial data? And I think this is where you're seeing why, you know, one, it's volume of data. They can get a lot more if they buy from all these different different customers, right, But uh, or all these different companies. But they then have that ability to share that data much more easily, right? You don't have to go through a declassification process. And also there is a benefit that we're seeing uh, in terms of trust, I think, when you have all these different imagery providers uh, releasing imagery to the public and showing, look, it's not just the U.S. government that's saying Russia says they're pulling back, but actually, look, they're amassing at the border. Here's multiple commercial providers that can can show you an image that that backs that up. And I think that also has an impact on the the trust and the believability of that that information. Right. And I think that's one thing the US has done really well on the information side of of dealing with the war. They really leverage information well, I think. It kind of brings me back to this idea of these national capabilities, the drive and the lesson maybe being to develop independent national capability or in, in this case the U.S.'s stellar commercial space sector has been critical to this openness and sharing information, as you just said, credibility. Mm-hmm. But there's been very little other competition of sharing that kind of data. So does this drive, again, nations like China or even Russia to start reinvesting in their whatever you would con- call a commercial marketplace or broad level of consumer level almost consumption of data to have their own systems that will be more amenable to their political goals or ethos or national issues at the moment, and can also provide a counter narrative of data 
for their interests. Do you see that kind of developing as a consequence of this? Yeah, I, th- I think we are already seeing that to some extent. So China has a rapidly growing remote sensing sector, including uh, commercial remote sensing uh, launch as well. They're getting you know commercial launch developers in China. You know, I think that was already happening, but my sense is that this will accelerate that trend uh, because I think there is that awareness that sector is is going to align with with national goals. I wonder if we will look back in history books and see this example of kind of like the way World War One was the start of. 20th century modernity, that this conflict said something about where we were globally with our technological capabilities when we look to that Ukrainians tweeting at a billionaire who deploys his private satellite service as a way to for them to avoid jamming of of local communication lines. That's almost like a nonsense statement 20 years ago, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's just, it's it's just a, a very telling way, I think, in which space and space assets are becoming so critical and the, basically providing, in a sense, independent. I think Elon even said on, on Twitter, like, exactly what he said, but you can't jam these things. You can't, they'll fly over regardless. Like, you can't, unless you try to shoot them down, which kind of brings us to your other topic that you specialize in, which is space sustainability, the ability to use and, and exist in, in Earth orbit safely. Last fall, we had a Russian anti-satellite test that destroyed one of their satellites, created a huge cloud of debris. They had to move the space station. How do you look at that event now in context of the Ukraine invasion? It's it's related in some ways, but and how has that changed this global discussion about space sustainability? Yeah. So let me say a couple things to building on your your earlier comments. So I think I think we might see this as our first example of the way these commercial space assets play a role uh, in conflict. And I think one of the takeaways as well is not only what the capabilities are and how much you know value they can add from that perspective, but how complex it makes it and how much gray area there is in terms of are these assets, as you're saying now, uh, at risk, right? Could they be attacked? I mean, certainly they're being jammed uh, in some cases. That's still an area of uncertainty and where there's a lot more gray space than than we've really had in, in previous conflicts. You know, that goes right into your question about the meaning of this Russian ASAT and, and what we might see in the future there. And I don't think there's any, you know, great answers yet, except that we haven't seen these these commercial entities be attacked, at least kinetically, right? We have seen jamming and we've seen some cyber attacks, but it remains to be seen what will, what will happen in the future. I will say with, with respect to the Russian ASAT in particular, I was really surprised when that happens. Usually, I think when you follow these kinds of things closely, you know, you can understand both sides or there's, you know, clear reasons why something might have happened, even if even if you uh, if you didn't expect that it would for sure. Uh, But with this one, it seemed very odd because, you know, there was really no doubt that Russia had ASAT capabilities. You know, they tested them many times in the past, just as the U.S. had, um, you know, all through the early space age and, and Cold War. And so why in an era where we're trying to promote space sustainability and Russia was engaging those efforts, why would they carry out a destructive ASAT test? The best argument I've heard is that that was specifically tied to plans for Ukraine and to kind of make uh, make it clear that Russia was able and willing to carry out that kind of attack. And the fact that they would do that in peacetime and create debris that, that went in important orbits and orbits where we have the ISS and the Chinese space station, that certainly they'd be willing to do that in, in the event of a conflict. 
Of course, we haven't seen them uh, actually have any kind of attacks, uh, kinetic attacks against space, uh, space assets related to the Ukrainian conflict. Uh, and partly it may be that it's it's simpler and more below the line in some sense, right? It stays in this gray area if you're carrying out cyber attacks, for example, or you're doing jamming. And so I think that, again, circles back to this area, to this issue of just having so much gray area. You know, how do you respond to, to those types of things? I mean, you were talking about earlier how so many things that have just been theoretical are now starting to be tested in, in reality. ASAT test remained a very provocative and high profile way to to do something <laughs> in a sense of to, to destroy satellite capabilities versus these less in a sense, less physical, like our brains in and just frankly, less consequential, right? It's the it's the debris cloud generated by these things that are just truly disastrous. However, this connection to Ukraine is basically the saber rattling, I guess, is one way to describe it. It's like, look what we can do. Don't mess with our assets when we're about to do something you don't like. Does remind us that we have really no structure around this or legal structure, global legal structure around this. He said it's just all of these gray areas. What does the Outer Space Treaty really say about this to the degree it says anything? And how much of every other kind of approach to space sustainability is enshrined in law, if any? In terms of international treaties, it's really, you know, the Outer Space Treaty is is the main one that applies here. And it does it says things like every nation has access to space for peaceful purposes, right? It prohibits harmful interference uh, with other people's satellites. But while I think they're important, these these clauses that are included here, they're relatively vague. Uh, and so, for example, one of the things that they they don't address is if you're going to be maneuvering satellites around in orbit, do you have to provide that information to anyone in advance? Um, how close to other nation satellites can you maneuver uh, without it being a, a safety risk, right? Or being interpreted as threatening. Um, so those types of activities are really not uh, governed by, by any agreement right now. Um, there was an effort a few years ago uh, in the United Nations in the Committee on the Peaceful Uses for Outer Space uh, to develop long-term sustainability guidelines um, and I think those also put together some useful agreements. You know, if you read through them, they're still relatively basic, you know, a lot about information sharing, making sure, you know, trying to be clear uh, with other nations what your goals are, what your what activities you're undertaking. Uh, but I think that was a good start. And then the most recent thing that that seemed very promising was this effort, again, within the auspices of the United Nations, to develop norms of behavior in outer space. Uh, so what does it mean to be a responsible actor in space? I think that looked like it was going to be a good international venue to really start pinning down some of these things that that we could all agree on. And that was set to meet, I believe, shortly before uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And so, like many other things, it really got derailed by that. So I believe they are still going to hold a, a meeting for that effort, um, I think in actually in just a few days here. But it's when you can't engage... Russia on these issues, and they're still a major space player, it, it's not clear to me how how meaningful the results of that will be. And, and I think that's kind of where I'm going with this line of questioning, which was, we have very vague international treaties. Most of the subsequent work has been, as you say, norms, right? Just people behaving well for the sake of behaving well, I guess, and, and kind of projection of national competence, I guess, on the global stage. But very few things controlling that, right? It's just it's all at the behest of the individual nation. 
can you have an effective set of global norms if you suddenly have a pariah state the way that Russia has become for a lot of people? Does that completely undo this or does it just make it, does it negate it completely? Is there what path forward is there? Because if they then start to follow these without being part of that discussion, it seems very unlikely that they would choose to do that, right? Because they're, they consider Russia considers itself at a high level player in the world stage. I think right now we have we have norms of behavior on a very kind of vague level, right? Uh-huh. Nobody has attacked anyone else's uh, space asset uh, up until now, for example. But we don't have that detailed level of agreement, right? Where we'd actually say, hey, if you come within one kilometer of someone else's satellite, that's going to be interpreted as irresponsible, right? That that your your um, potential of creating a collision is is too high. Um, we don't have agreement on that kind of thing right now. And I think to get to that level of agreement, you have to have these discussions. I think we could come to that level of agreement with our allies, but it's not as meaningful, right? I think the the ones where you really want to be sure we're on the same page about what's aggressive behavior and what's just technology demonstration and and is fine, you know, that's Russia and that's China. And And so before, you know, before the war in Ukraine, I mentioned earlier that the U.S. and Russia were engaging in these bilateral um, discussions, and I think that was a really smart idea. You know, we we want to have some level of transparency and understanding about how we interpret these actions so that you don't have misinterpretations and accidents, right? That's not good for anybody. Um, but I think right now, you know, those bilateral conversations are off the table. Um, and I, it's not clear to what degree Russia will engage in the the multilateral uh, discussions either. And I think without them, we can still get something, and maybe there'll be there'll be value there. But uh, but I think it would be much better if we could have more full cooperation. You wrote in a recent paper about this a related challenge that there's this inherent dual use function of a lot of emergent space technologies. In this paper, you highlighted robotic servicing, right? So getting really close and docking with or doing, you just go a little faster and suddenly you're a kinetic impactor, right? And you've destroyed the spacecraft. In the paper, you highlight a couple of situations where a Russian satellite in the in GEO was hopping around and getting very close, but not super close, but kind of showing that it could get closer if it wanted to, to this point. And, and that was a really interesting perspective to me is like, if there's no clear line of what escalation is, right, if everyone doesn't agree again about what's a acceptable versus very inflammatory kind of behavior, you can very easily, as you point out, this can spiral out of control. So the fact that we don't even have clear agreed layers of what accounts for this is seems to be troubling, particularly in this situation, and now almost potentially regressing as a, as a consequence of, of this war, even though it's becoming, in a sense, far more pertinent to everything that we're talking about here, right? And so I I don't know. What's the solution for that? I, I don't know how to even phrase this. It just seems troubling. I don't want to necessarily leave it on just the, yeah. that that fact. I mean, space always has been, parts of it have always been like this Janus-like situation of rockets or just missiles that don't aim downwards, right? So there's there's always been this dual-use part of it. So how do you approach something like this? Or is it just going to be something we muddle through? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good example of the fact that we need to have engagement, right? You, you can't just solve it um, with technology. You can't just solve it unilaterally, right? So we have these, these capabilities that you're mentioning, this uh, rendezvous and proximity operations, for example, where Russia, China, and the U.S. have all demonstrated this capability uh, in, in geostationary orbit, where they can maneuver around that orbit and place themselves next to other 
satellites. And both Russia and the U.S. have done this where they've placed you know, their satellites near foreign satellites, for example, uh, without the permission of, of the satellite they're getting near. The U.S. feels very uneasy about Russia doing this and has made complaints. You know, Russia has essentially responded that they're not breaking any rules. You know, there's no nothing that says you can't do this and they're just conducting experiments and that's it. And at the same time, you know, the U.S. has done somewhat similar activities, you know, maneuvering around uh, with our GSAP satellites, maneuvering around geostationary orbit. Uh, and whereas we talk about that activity as being a, a space situational awareness activity, you know, trying to monitor debris in orbit and that these uh, satellites are contributing to that mission, that's not the way Russia is interpreting that activity. And so you can kind of see on both sides this this lack of trust and a kind of jumping to the the worst interpretation of, of what this might be, right? That, that this is certainly they're testing a weapon, for example, rather than whatever they, they say they're doing on the surface. You know, you can't really solve that problem without engaging with these other actors, right? And and trying to come up with ways to to build trust, to provide transparency. So I think we have these technologies. The technologies are moving forward. We have to find a way to engage on the international level and make sure that our international engagement and our our policy uh, and and norms that those are also advancing uh, along at the same time. Kamala Harris said. Uh, the other week that the U.S. will now unilaterally stop doing uh, kinetic ASAT. I forget if it was tests or just in general that the United States would just not do this in an effort to de-escalate some of these discussions and also to set this kind of standard of normative behavior. Again, when you have these types of broader geopolitical context, is it possible to set that type of behavior unilaterally without as you point out, kind of a, a solid working foundation, where do you see the consequences or, or path forward from this announcement on the U.S. side going? I think it was a, a great move and one that maybe could have even happened sooner. You know, I think we saw this uh, progression, you know, the Russian, the Russian ASAT happened most recently, but uh, India carried out uh, an ASAT, uh, China a number of years before that. From the U.S. perspective, there isn't a, a reason for us to carry out ASATs. You know, we, we've done them in the past. It's it's clear the U.S. has that capability. There's really not a need to demonstrate it uh, again, and uh, especially in creating debris. You know that that really harms the U.S. more than any other entity because we're the most reliant on space. We have the most stuff in space, um, and so I think for the U.S. to say, okay, we're going to come out and and say clearly. No more debris creating ASAT tests. That is a bad thing to do, right? Going back to this, you know, what's a responsible actor in space? That is not responsible. <laughs> you know, don't create debris in space on purpose. So I think that's that's a good thing for the U.S. to do. The debate is whether whether it would is best to do that, you know, unilaterally and kind of set the example and try hope that others will will follow suit, or the U.S. also could have tried to develop that as a, a multilateral agreement to get others to, to kind of sign on at the same time. And I don't know, there, there's pros and cons to both, but I think there is certainly benefits to getting it done now. Um, and, and and the sooner the better and setting that example uh, and getting the ball rolling on, you know, here's what it looks like to be responsible in space. Well, looking forward, it's impossible, obviously, there's a lot of dynamic stuff in play, but what from your expert position and your expert community what are the topics you're going to be following most closely in terms of how this begins to develop? And, and what are you looking for, if anything, either deviations from expectations or expectations that you need to see fulfilled? In terms of, of space sustainability? 
space sustainability, but also from this conflict and how the themes that we've been talking about in terms of how space is being used, how cooperation will go forward or not. Basically, do you see things falling out of, you know, consequences in space behavior that you think will be able to tie back to this moment? I'll certainly be continuing to watch closely how the space sector is involved in in the conflict in Ukraine, because so many things that were theoretical, we're now seeing play out in reality. I think there is a process of learning that's happening as well. What's valuable, what's not, you know, where commercial can play a role. I see a lot of new companies potentially getting off the ground, you know, realizing different needs that might be out there. Uh, you see existing companies expanding uh, the things that they're providing, either the types of information, the types of analysis. And I think we've only started to scratch the surface on that. So I think there'll be interesting evolution in terms of how that how space technology is used. Even though right now we've seen jamming and cyber attacks uh, and, and nothing really catastrophic in terms of the attacks on, on space assets, I don't think there's a guarantee that that's going to continue in the future. So I think I'm also cautiously watching that element as well and, you know, how, how that plays out and, and what Russia decides to do in the future. Um, so I think all of that is going to be, could, could certainly be evolving. So I'll be watching that. In terms of space sustainability and, and how do we move, move forward on these areas, I, I think there is a lot that the U.S. can do working unilaterally and working with its allies. And I think that might be some of the near-term um, areas that we have to focus on because there are things like improving space situational awareness, right? And and this whole transition that's happening in the U.S. right now from space situational awareness really being managed by the Department of Defense and now switching over to potentially the Department of Commerce, which should really open up the ability of the U.S. to work with commercial entities, to work with uh, other countries, and to improve our ability to to see what's up there and avoid at least the accidental kind of collisions. So I think there's there really is a lot that can be done that's going to improve space sustainability that we that the US can do can do with its allies. And then I hope at some point we can get back to these international agreements on on norms of behavior and and things that would deal with not just accidental damage caused in space, but avoiding any kind of purposeful harm that could happen there as well. Well, as we follow that, we will make sure to ask you again in the future. So that was Dr. Mariel Borowitz, uh, Associate Professor at the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really fascinating discussion, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Casey Dreyer of the Planetary Society talking with Mariel Borowitz. A fascinating conversation, Casey. Once again, thank you so much for that. And uh, and thank you, Mariel. That pretty much closes out this anniversary edition of the Space Policy Edition. Yeah, this is great, Matt. As always, a joy to do this with you and to learn all these great things about space policy. There's so much more to talk about in the future. Uh, Hope to keep doing these. I sure plan to. And uh, we hope that you will continue to join us every uh, first Friday, almost every first Friday. Sometimes we push it back a little bit. Of course, every week you can tune in to Planetary Radio and catch Casey periodically there as well with uh, shorter updates. The next Space Policy Edition, though, you can expect on the first Friday in the month of June 2022. Plenty of time between now and then for you to visit planetary.org slash join 
and stand behind this show, stand behind all of the great work that Casey is doing with Brendan Curry in Washington and all of our colleagues at the Planetary Society. We hope that you will join us. Again, thank you and uh, happy anniversary, Casey. He is Chief Advocate for the Planetary Society, Senior Space Policy Advisor. I'm the host of Planetary Radio at Astro.